Hey there, welcome back to Searching for Political Identity. Thank you so much for being here. Episode 51. The theme of this episode, maybe I'll just ask the question out front. Um, Which political party today is the party of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream? And which one is the party of Orwell's nightmare? That question should help frame what I'm trying to get at. Um, Look, people on the left say that the right are fascists, that there's a growing fascist element. And I'll get into that a bit in this episode. And then I'll say, but also many people on the right think that the left has a totalitarian impulse. And what do they mean by that? And so both sides, and I hate to play into the division, but there's just so much of it. And well, what else am I going to do? But there, it ultimately is a culture war. And I'm going to get into that as well. So basically in this episode, and I'll try to keep it at about 20 minutes, is that is what I'm going to try to do is what I'm going to try to do. I can't speak. First, I'm going to try to speak. And then what I'm going to try to do is use the very powerful experiences that I continue to have every week in this now second class that I've taken at the tail end of law school, which is all in about critical race theory. Remember, I'm graduating law school in a month. Uh, Yay for me. And uh, having very powerful experiences. So I'm going to, and, and it's all about culture. It's bottom line, it's about culture and assimilation. And oh my gosh, I guess I'll just get into it right now. In these classes, in this class right now, we're reading a book called The Racial Glass Ceiling by Professor Roy L. Brooks, who's my professor. He's just wonderful. Oh, here I go. Okay, I'm going to try to tie it all together. My mind is now spinning. Before I tell you the class experience, I'm going to give you the 45-second background on Professor. Professor is an older black man. Um, I couldn't admire him or respect him more. He's a master and commander of the law, and he's just that professor that wants students to become leaders and succeed, and he couldn't be any, any greater. He just couldn't be greater. I just, oh my God, I love him. And he's, as I say, uh, a commander of the material. So, and we're, so he's, but he's the social justice teacher at the school. And so he sends you off after you learn all this traditional stuff, and they wrap you up and wind you up real tight. You take his classes if you want, and he blows your mind, and he, and he, and he tells you there is no spoon, bend the box, get out of the box, whatever. Okay. But Professor went to Yale Law School and was there with the Clintons and Scalia and Alito, um, Clarence Thomas. And he always tells us these anecdotes about what he calls the black table. On Friday nights, the mostly black students, um, the aforementioned people would stop by, except for Alito apparently would linger in the corner, um, not join the table ever, but he was listening. And that's apparently reflected in his dissent in Fisher. It's reflective of arguments that he overheard. He actually used some of the critical race theorist arguments in striking down a particular affirmative action scheme. So... Interesting, but the point is, every Friday night, these guys, mostly black and gals, would get together and 
figure out what they want to do when they grow up after they, you know, put in their time as grunt lawyers, what they want to do. And Professor says the only requirement is you had to have done some reading. You can't just show up on a Friday night and say, I, I feel this way or I feel that way. You have to have done some reading and put forth an argument. So just imagine that environment. Clarence Thomas, and Professor knows Clarence Thomas well. He says he caught six touchdown passes from quarterback Clarence Thomas at a law school, uh, Yale versus Harvard, I think he said, uh, match. You know, it's just, it's just amazing stuff. And Clarence Thomas uses on the Supreme Court arguments that he developed in school at, at around that table. And Clarence Thomas's arguments are very different than a critical race theorist arguments. So we can get into all that. But I tell you this just to say what an amazing experience this is. So we're reading The Racial Glass Ceiling, and the guy who wrote it, the amazing guy who wrote it, is, is breaking it down for us and leading the discussions in class. So it's just a blessing. So, and it blows your mind. If you're me, it blows your mind if you're me. Um, anyway, having these powerful experiences in class, and where was I going with that? Yes. So right now, the material in the book is, is asking us to consider cultural assimilation. And, and basically, think of it like, first of all, critical race theory is the notion that race-neutral systems, like America, where we no longer have racist laws, race-neutral laws, systems, can, still, can and do still yield effects, burdensome effects that fall disproportionately on certain racial groups. If you followed that, then you, you understand critical race theory. The idea is, hey, the laws are neutral now, but we're still dealing with this trauma. We're still dealing with this. You might have fixed the laws on the books, but the law in the street, the effects are still the same. So what are we going to do about it? Critical race theory says we got to transform society. we got to transform in a big way. That's the only way to achieve equity and real equality. And the traditionalist would say, no, man, it's 2022. Everyone is judged on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. It's 2022, man, in America. Get a job, save up, whatever. Like, everything's cool. Um, we don't need to transform anything. We have a great system, and anyone can achieve if you pick yourself up by your bootstraps. So, culture. So that's critical race theory in the legal sense, but there's so much to it. There's so much more to it, and it is very much about culture. And the question is, as being presented in the book and in class. This is not coming from me. The question is, is America, and I know this sounds like I'm just trying to be provocative, but and we, and we do these discussions in the safety of a classroom, and that's what I want this podcast to be. So for anyone who sees my provocative tweets and whatever, just know that this podcast, it is a safe space um, for thought and free exchange of ideas. So that's that. So we're going to talk about powerful stuff and, and disturbing stuff and stuff like that. Controversial stuff. Because we got to get at the truth. We got to get at some common ground. Whatever. Okay. Where was I? Okay. Cr critical race theory. Right. 
So I'm not trying. To, I'm not trying to be controversial to be a jerk. I'm trying to be controversial because the material is controversial. The re- reality is controversial. So let's get into it. One question we have to ask ourselves is, and this is like the cultural side of critical race theory. I just gave you the hardcore legal definition, which hopefully helps you understand when politicians and pundits throw that term around what it means. The whole race-neutral systems yielding race um, burdensome effects on certain groups concept. And, And that's where white privilege comes from because it's like, hey, certain racial groups, i.e. black people, deal with effects in this society, even though it's race neutral on its face, that white people don't. And that's not fair, man. We got to change something. And you can understand that. And we should all understand that. That's critical race theory in the legal sense. But if you look at the cultural side of critical race theory, you can say, hey, well, you ask yourself this question. Is the mainstream, this is from the material, is the mainstream culture in America, think about what, is it, what does it mean to be mainstream in America? What are mainstream values? What does it take to be successful, quote unquote? And obviously you have to define for yourself what success means, but the, the materials presented in this book would have you believe that basically mainstream values in America are white values. And... White values are to work hard and try to make as much money as you can. And uh, it's more of an opportunist environment. Um, So the idea is that different cultures, first of all, have different values. That there's such a thing as white values, black values, Asian, Jewish, Indian, Mexican, you know... And I guess there are, right? You have to ask yourself, are there different cultural values? I suppose there are. So then the question becomes, does the mainstream culture in America select one of those values, systems, one of those cultures, and make that the norm, the default? And does it ask... So basically, the materials would have you believe, look, the mainstream value system in America is white. And you can see how conservatives really recoil at this stuff because they don't want to think of people as black values, Jewish values. They say, look, in America, there are just American values. There are good values and there are bad values. And so this will be a key theme in my later points. And I won't go too much longer. I'm trying to be brief in these episodes. But the critical race theorist would have you believe that mainstream America is white. And that to fit in, to succeed, if you take it, that success, first of all, they would say that the definition of success is defined by white values, and so the very definition of success is defined by white values. Oh, gosh, hold on. Lucy is a critical critical race theorist. She didn't like that. Um, So success is a white value, is determined by white values, and then they would say, in order to achieve success, you have to conform to white values. So you have to suppress your culture. You have to wear your hair a certain way. You can't wear your ethnic clothing. You, so the question becomes, is the white culture of America, if you take it that it is white, how much cultural suppression is going on? And is it a bad thing that America asks people to conform? The melting pot thing. You know, you come here and you melt and you get the American stew. 
Well, the critical race theorists would say, hey, from a cultural perspective, we don't like how you're asking everyone to melt into this pot. We think you should be able to retain your culture. And then, so look, the conservative will say, sure, you can retain your culture. You just have to assimilate, you know? And so it very much becomes about assimilation. And to what extent you believe that our society today is a white, is a white society. And that's what they mean by structural racism, systemic racism, the idea that these systems are white systems. It doesn't matter that you had the civil rights legislation. It doesn't matter that traditionally marginalized groups can come into the system. And this is a key point for me because I like to think in metaphors. And if you think of America as a house, a big house, right, that everyone or big you know, property that everyone is trying to get into because it's a great place. And I always think, you know, do we need repairs? How much, how, what do we need to do to this metaphorical house that is America? How much repairs? To what extent do we need to repair it? Critical race theory says we need to knock it down, man. Totally knock it down and rebuild it. Traditionalists, the Ted Cruz's, the Donald Trump's of the world, they would say, the Larry Elder's, the Ben Carson's, you know, all the black conservatives, they would say the American dream, the house is just fine. The trick is making sure that more people have access and getting more people in it. And, um, critical race theorists would say, we don't want to go in that house. That house is for white people. That is a house, that is a system, that is a country that is built for white values. And you cannot ask me if I'm a, if you're, say I'm a black American or critical race theory is about black, the black experience, but the model can be applied to any traditionally marginalized group. They would say, I'm not good. No, it's not good enough. That constitution that was written by slaveholders is not good enough. You can't reform it. You can't fix bad. You can't fix inherently bad. So it becomes a question of really, certainly the far left. The left, as, as it continues to be guided by the far left, is the party of social transformation. I don't want to say hating America, but it's kind of part of it. They really do hate some of some of the left really does hate America because they view it as still a system that prefers white people and that's what this is all about so the right the conservatives they hear all that well they'd be shocked to hear all this and they would say you guys are a bunch of victim lovers you guys love grievance you guys like being victims um and in 2022, as I said earlier, everyone can get ahead in this system if you do the right thing. But they would hear, the, the left would hear the white thing. <laughs> so if you do the white thing, you should be fine. Um, but it's, this is serious stuff. Um, so there's that dynamic, um, the culture war, that, that is real. And so we can't ignore the fact that there are many among the left that really want to tear this thing down. And so you can't just sweep that under the rug and pretend that that um, radical element doesn't exist. It's radical because it wants to get to the root of, of the problem. That's what the word radical means, to get at the root. And yeah, they, they see a systemic problem. They see a system built for whites, and they want to dismantle it. And so you can understand why conservatives say, hey, man, this is 2022. 
the American system has been opened up to all people. Look at all the success in America of people by all different backgrounds and skin colors and this and that. Um, but one final point on this d d divide is that some on the left would call uh, the diversity in, in America that exists today aesthetic diversity, a term that means you might have brown faces, black faces, but they have white minds and white values. And you can see how this stuff is so controversial to people on the right who say, hey, we're supposed to be living in Dr. Martin Luther King's dream, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, where everyone's judged on the content of their character, not their skin color. Why are you telling me that uh, a black person like Ben Carson or Larry Elder has a white mind? That's not fair. Because that's not fair to say that American values are white values and that therefore a black person who conser uh, embraces conservatism a black conservative has a white mind. That's not freaking fair. That's racist. Wow, really tough stuff, right? So who's being racist here? Kind of seems like the left is being racist when they say that a black conservative is um, an enemy of his own people. Sounds racist to me. And this gets to the question of individualism. You, you, know, you always think of the right, the conservatives, as being champions for individualism and the left is being more collectivist. And I said to Professor on uh, Thursday, I said, I brought that up, and I said, you know, what do you think about this? And he said, yes, Mr. Eskow, but think of the critical race theorists as being even more champions for individualism. In other words, if you're a conservative listening to this and you're saying, hey, let's just let people be people and not worry about skin color and this and that. Oh, you know what? I just realized I didn't finish my point about aesthetic diversity. Aesthetic diversity is white minds having um, all the faces with different colors but having white minds. And the point is the critical race theory says, theorist says that's aesthetic diversity. That's not real diversity. Real diversity would be a substantive exchange of values. And that's when the transformation would happen. You see that? Okay, so what does diversity mean is another big question. But back to the individualism concept, the conservative would say, just let people be people. Don't worry about skin color, man. It just, just don't worry about it. It's 2022. It's all good. And that's where I find myself, to be honest with you. But the critical race theorists would say, no, you can't take that colorblind approach because that ignores the very real racist problems that people of color have to deal with. So follow this. The critical race theorists would say, by focusing on black people as a group and by maybe even giving them special treatment and recognizing that they need special protection under the law because they face problems that other people don't face, that actually promotes individualism because by protecting that class of people, by protecting black people, um, by giving them enhanced protection or reshaping laws to suit black needs and black values, that actually would promote individualism in a greater way than traditionalism would because that would actually allow for equity and for black people to achieve um, success on their own terms in society. Give them what they need, which is protection. And um, because we live in a racist world, that's just the reality. That's, that's basically the dynamic at play here.
So you have these critical race theorists who think that there is a tremendous amount of racism still in this country and in this world, but let's stick with this country, and that there are microaggressions happening all the time. And, and I had to look that up, and I, I had to ask the class. They were talking about my... I said, what, what is a microaggression? I guess I should have known, but it's like a s subtle or an indirect um, insult or disrespect to towards a person who's part of a traditionally marginalized group. It's like, to me, that's just called being an asshole. I, you know, and, and that's what it comes down to. You either think that people are super racist today and everything explains that, or you think that people are just people and that sure racism exists, but it's largely an item of the past. It's certainly not built into our institutions anymore. So which side do you come on? And you can look at police um, brutality, police uh, violence against police killings against people of color, and there's st statistical disparities there. And you have to ask yourself, what's going on? The critical race theorists would say that's obviously a prime evidence of systemic racism. Black people are being killed at three times the rate of white people. It's just preposterous. And the traditionalists would say these are tragic deaths, but the fact is that if they had, if the victims had complied, if the victims had not resisted, if the victims had not run, then they wouldn't have happened. And it gets back to values, you know, as I've been told in class, um, especially older in the back in the day, a lot of black families told their children apparently to run from the police. And so should we ask the black families to reevaluate re re their values and say, hey, and is it asking them to be more white? To say, hey, don't run from the police. Just don't run. Don't, don't run from them. It's more dangerous to run from the police. Just comply. Um, uh, so, so that's a prime example of um, where this debate could play out about culture and what explains the problems in the black community. Is it the culture at large suppressing black values and is it the tension that results from that? Or is it that, you know, well, yeah, just that. I mean, is it whose fault is it? Is it the system's fault for imposing values that these group of people just don't have and it's not fair? Or is it the, or do you think that the black people in this community that are affected should pick themselves up by their bootstraps and conform to the system? You know, on a personal note, it's just tragic to see anyone killed on camera and, uh, Daniel Leoya, or excuse me, I think it's Patrick Leoya. Um, it's just the latest, and uh, we'll see what the investigation says. But there's a lot of con there'll, there'll be a lot of discussion about that. Just tragedy, very sad. Um, you know, no matter what, it's just very sad. So this is a hu this is human tragedy we're talking about. This is human stuff. So that's what makes it so hard. Uh, this is academic conversation. It's theoretical, it's philosophical, it's legal, but it's also very human. And the critical race theorists would say black people are at a risk in this society that is different. It's heightened. Let me repeat that. The critical race theorists would say black people are at enhanced 
risk in this society and that they need special protection. Affirmative action, you know, pick. So there's a lot to get into. And the traditionalists, again, would say, what are you talking about? It's, how could you say that black people are at enhanced risk in this society? You know, look at all the successful black business owners, wealthy black people. We know that disparities exist, but come on, stop looking at the racial disparities. You can't explain everything by race. Anyone can go out there and achieve success. You don't have to be rich to be successful in this country, they would say, the right would say. You just have to show up for work, keep your, you know, pay your rent, pay your mortgage, whatever it be, have a family, have a dog, have a kid, and live a good life and be a productive citizen. You know, not everyone needs to be wealthy. What's wrong with this capitalist society that requires you to go to work? Well, what if you don't want to work? So is, is work, is capitalism, is this society a white value? Is this a white culture? Um, so I spent quite a bit of time there on the culture conversation and the assimilation debate. And there's a lot of terminology that I didn't include, and it gets pretty sophisticated, and you got all these different ways of looking at it. But that's basically what's going on. It's a debate over what it means to be American and whether or not you think that means being white. Um, and if it does, then we got to change something because it's not that, that would not be right. I never looked at it that way. I, I, you know, our American history is American history, good and bad, but, and there's plenty of bad. But the question is today, what's our society today? That's the question. In today's society, one side would have you believe that it's a free society with opportunity to go around, and the other would not. Okay, enough of that. So, yeah, I, I got to be honest, there is a lot of hatred of white uh, people in these classes by the students, fellow students, not the professor at all, but the students. There, There's a lot of anger and resentment among these students, and they want to tear it all down. And transitioning to a quick conversation, and then I'll wrap it up about fascism. You know, you can understand, though, why these students who represent the far left, why the far left is getting worried when you think about the Supreme Court. And first of all, congratulations to Justice Jackson. I think that's fantastic. But the, the makeup of the court is clearly as conservative as it's ever been. And there are concerns that... Um, certain LGBTQ rights are going to be revoked and people look at that as tragic and terrifying and a return to this Christian rule, which is obviously not the intent of government, of our government, to be ruled by any Christian values or religious values. So yeah, I'm, I'm pro-LGBTQ. I have no problem with... Um, people in those communities communities excuse me um having equal access to all the things that people who are not members of that community have uh that makes sense to me so that that's kind of it's it's as simple as that for me uh there is the religious thing yeah and then abortion so i guess let's start with abortion because that's what's clearly coming down the pike um, 
Yeah, I'm pro-choice. Um, even though who would be pro-abortion, right? Like I'm pro-choice. Um, hopefully, you never, you know, have to get an abortion. But I'm just, I'm just pro-choice on bodily autonomy principles. I talked about that in episode 16. But yes, conservatives want to repeal Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. They want to, they want to send it back to the states. Same with gay rights. Okay. And they're going to say, look, it's a states' rights thing. We live in a, the states' rights are, we live in a constitutional republic. The states are the laboratories of democracy. And you shouldn't let the federal, the federal government just doesn't have the power and it shouldn't have the power to tell a state what kind of uh, values to live by. And uh, the left would say that's ridiculous. That's discrimination. The whole point of the federal government is to protect people's rights and liberties. And of course, the right would say, yeah, but you don't, you know, those liberties are made up by judges and we don't agree with those liberties. Now, that's why, and that's why the left would call it fascism because now the right wants to tell you you don't exist with don't say gay and don't talk about critical race theory because we don't want to tell people that people get treated differently based on their skin color, but especially young kids. The right says, you're trying to indoctrinate my kids, man. So this is where I come down on it. And I'll try to land the plane here. I, once again, support gay rights. I am pro-choice. So the Supreme Court better not mess with those rights. And I hope that they don't. And if they don't, then I'm okay with the don't say gay bill and the bans on critical race theory that teach it at a young age. Because, and of course, we're... We don't need to get tripped up on, of course, they're not teaching the entire complex, sophisticated legal theory to children, but they're teaching white privilege. And that's the distilled version of it. And don't tell me you're not teaching critical race theory if you're teaching that to kids. So I say, no, what the right is doing is not fascism by saying we want to keep these discussions out of the younger grades. Um, but it it'll kind of start looking like fascism if they have success with abortion and um, gay rights. Now, well, they're pushing these bills, and they are pushing these bills. So you know what? Let me rethink this. The right, is it is it fascist with these abortion bans that they're pushing? Let me, let's get serious here. It really does. It really does start to look like fascism, I'll be honest with you. So the fear is justified, isn't it, on the left? So, wow, that's kind of a learning, you know. It, but the right, of course, is going to say, we're just trying to protect life, man. And, well, the bottom line is, they're trying to regiment society. And at the end of the day, if you look up the definition of fascism, it's a form of far-right, authoritarian, ultranationalism, characterized by dictor dicta dictatorial power, forcible suppression of opposition, and strong regimentation of society and the economy that rose to prominence in the early 20th century in Europe. Um, well, if you look at strong regimentation of society, it's pretty strong regimentation to say that a government can go into a woman's body and tell her that she can and cannot do something with her body. Of course, the Republicans are going to say, well, you're actually the one regimenting society by killing in uh, fetuses, you know, we're that's a dystopian hell, 
and we don't want to live in that regimentation of society. Um, no, but I tend to agree with the left on this one. So let me be clear about that. You know, being pro-choice is not the hill that I would prefer to die on. What I'm trying to say is nobody. I don't want to. Th- I don't like abortion. I wish, like I said, I wish it wasn't ever necessary, and I'm not that informed about it. Like I said, it's just a bodily autonomy principles thing. And then the right would say, well, what about the bodily autonomy principles of the fetus? And then you get into the debate about, well, a fetus doesn't have uh, a bo- you know, it doesn't have bodily autonomy principles. It's not a person. It's not a life. It's not, it doesn't have rights. So when you think, but it's, com- this stuff is complex. So yeah. And so gay rights, um, to say we, we want to go back to a time where we don't recognize gay rights. You know, we want to send these people back into the, um, hidden places of society. Um, I, I certainly don't want that either. I definitely don't want that. Absolutely not. So is it fascist to say that? Well, sure looks like it, right? It sure looks like it. Um, it really does. I think just the better argument belongs to the left on that one. So I hope the Supreme Court doesn't allow any of this stuff to happen. I think the Republicans pushing these bills, yeah, it, it's a problem, okay? And there's no getting around that. What I will say in their, not in their defense, but as an attempt to just kind of try to help everyone see from the other perspective a little bit, the, as I've been, ta- I was talking about the critical race theory thing a lot, and, and that culture uh, pressure is real, and so you can't blame the Republicans for saying, you know what? We're threatened, man. They're coming after everything now. F, F it. Let's just try to take it take it all back. And so we got to meet in the middle. We got to meet in the middle. And where that is for me is where I thought we were as a country, and I hope we were and are, and I hope we get to if we're not, which is, hey, let's keep gay marriage. Let's keep pro-choice. And let's keep that stuff out of young children's classrooms. Let's focus their education on uh, traditional stuff that's going to help them succeed. Let's not ignore our past. Let's continue to teach our past. Let's do a better job of it. Let's keep improving. And let's make sure we take care of everybody. And let's have these sensitive conversations about culture and success and what everybody needs to achieve what they define as success um, but it's tricky. It's tricky. And so this is real stuff. This is real stuff. But I guess it's fair to say that I come down as kind of a traditionalist where where most Repu- you would consider most Repu- uh, traditionalists to be Republicans. And I don't know if I'm that, but by my voting record or not, I voted Obama, Obama, Clinton, Biden. But I'm a traditionalist in the sense that, yeah, I, I want to think about society as colorblind. I don't. I just don't want to think about people in terms of skin color. I don't want to think about black people needing special protection. And they're going to say, well, do, well bury your, keep your head in the sand then. But yeah, my ideal vision of America is one where the colorblind um, values that we have on paper are truly in effect on the ground. And if we can do that, then... If you want to say we have white values, if you want to say we have aesthetic diversity where brown, black faces and white minds, if you want to call it white values, white minds, then I guess, you know, I guess that makes me a freaking clan member in some people's eyes. But to me, it just says, no, 
2022, we have American values. It's a blend of all things. We embrace the melting pot analogy. And yes, there's going to be some cultural sacrifices you have to make from time to time. And we have a great body of constitutional law still developing that protects people. And I come down on, hey, this is a great country, a great system, uh, best in the world as far as I'm concerned. I'm proud of it. I love it. And it's always a work in progress. But this um, theory, critical race theory that was developed in the uh, late 70s, you know, I question whether or not it applies today. And many people would say that it sure does, Brian, and, and you're just not getting it. And I know I'm getting it academically, um, but they would say you're not getting it in the heart, in the gut. And so I'm open-minded. I got to be open-minded. I'm searching for political identity, and this is a huge part of that search. You know, do you want to belong to the party that looks at identity, personal identity, as attached to skin color and culture, or do you want to look at the, you want to belong to the party that looks at just identity as in terms of how you operate? And which, like I said, which party today is the party of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream? that everyone be judged on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Um, it's complicated. You could write an essay. You could write a book, a paper um, on that question. Maybe I will one day. And, and what about Orwell's nightmare? Which, which party is the totalitarians? I, I say that it is more so the right, the Republicans that are more totalitarian. Um, with their efforts on uh, this abortion thing. Now, I understand it's a sensitive topic, and yes, it's religiously motivated in many ways, but it's also, you know, they have legal arguments about the fetus, but it's religiously motivated, and, you know, we can't dismiss their, their arguments just because it comes from a religious place, but yes, I would say the, because of that, they, they, they take the crown of being more, more totalitarian. Um, but let's also recognize that there are some things happening on the left that give Republicans reason to be concerned about reasonable, what they consider to be reasonable American values. And they don't, they don't see it the same way as the left does. And so, yes, the Republicans are more totalitarian, but there is some totalitarian impulse on the left. And what do I mean by that? I mean the idea that they're very much for censorship. And... They might be right. You know, the left, they might have the superior argument morally and legally. And you can understand why they would be vicious then, generally, against the right. I get that. But I think that this general picture painting of people on the right as racist and as fascist, generally, without a deeper understanding of where they're coming from, I think that has made it so that Republicans feel they're under attack. And so while their attack against freedom and liberty from the abortion and gay marriage side of things is very real, they perceive uh, an attack on their liberty, which is, hey, if you're telling me that the country we live in today that currently has pro-choice and pro-gay marriage, you're telling me this country... In 2022, America still needs to be reformed. It still needs to be deconstructed. Then I feel threatened. And that's when they say, you, you guys are kind of totalitarian because, like, what more could you want? So in conclusion, for me, 
I say that although the Republicans are generally the greater offenders on the fascist totalitarian scale, you can understand why they feel threatened and feel like the left has a totalitarian impulse as well because of the message they're sending where, hey, we still got to rebuild and redo the society. The notion that we don't live today in a free, open, multi-ethnic society where everyone can achieve success is crazy to Republicans. They think we absolutely have those things right now and that to want to dismantle this system is to want to dismantle a great American system where everyone has the opportunity to succeed. And they just fear that the far left, if they dismantle this system, the one that they rebuild it with, is not going to be as good. It's not going to be as free. So that's the debate playing out as far as I can see it. That'll do it for this episode. A lot of intense stuff. And uh, I thank you for putting up with it and listening to it. And hope you can chew on that. And uh, yeah, it's really difficult stuff. So let me know if you have any questions. We have to answer them on uh, Twitter. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.